church. Tonight, if you have your Bibles, we're turning back to the book of Mark, chapter number 3. We have been studying for some time treasures from the book of Mark. And somehow, the Lord sent us on a, another treasure, uh, a treasure trove to go after the master's meeting. We studied 12 disciples. 12 weeks we spent on studying the master's men. Tonight, we turn back to the book of Mark, chapter number 3, and we're going to pick up in verse number 20 of Mark chapter number 3. And I want to read just a couple of these verses as we begin this evening, and we'll see how far the Lord will let us go. Verse number 20 says, And the multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, He is beside himself. Interesting words, these two verses. Begin to think about the Savior's scorn. That's the title of the message tonight, the Savior's scorn. Now, look at verse 20. There is the word multitude. That's a large number of people. Mark uses this 16 times in his gospel. It's a large number of people who have gathered together in a disorganized way. A few synonyms for the word multitude might be a crowd a throng, a mass, a pack of people, a company, a, a group, a, a mob. Uh, when you look through the Gospels, you see crowds, multitudes, constantly gathering around the Lord Jesus. And over and over, these crowds gather, sometimes, many times, gathering even in unbelief. Jesus has been healing them touching them, feeding them. He's serving them, loving them, encouraging them. And no matter what he does for them, most of the time, they're not completely satisfied because we know if we get a physical healing, as exciting as that is, we may need another and another and another. If I get cured of a headache, I may get a stomachache. I get cured of the stomachache, I may have an eye problem. The Lord's not just into physical healings. He didn't, he didn't come just to heal people. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to heal the soul, amen. And so people are always surrounding him, wanting more and more and more of the miracles. Now may I say tonight, when I talk about unbelief, you say, Preacher Dan, you're saying there's unbelief here? Oh, yes. Unbelief is not all the same, and yet it is all the same. Sometimes you'll see unbelief wearing a respectful face. People that are courteous, people that are cordial, people that are friendly, people that are polite to, to, towards Christ. It has an outward appearance of being, of being friendly with the things of God. But ultimately it's being hidden behind the mask because if you look down in the heart, there's no relationship with Jesus Christ. They're just following the multitudes, just following the masses, amen. Never having a relationship with Jesus, filled with unbelief. And then on the other hand, there is the crowd that is easy to discern with unbelief. They're, they're cursing the name of Christ. They're, they're rejecting the things of God. They're defaming the, the name of the Lord. These two extremes are ultimately the same. For unbelief 
is unbelief. Unbelief and being polite and unbelief and being publicly cursing goes to the same place. They're all the same thing. They're unsurrendered to Christ. And did you know the face of unbelief is with us today? It's in our church every Sunday. The human heart has not changed. Human nature has not changed. Unbelief has not changed. Amen. I'll tell you somebody else has not changed. Jesus Christ has not changed. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Thank God for it. Now when I see these multitudes, you're going to see at least three different crowds in the verses that we see tonight. Number one, in verse 20, I see the curious crowd. Jesus has been on the mountaintop ordaining his 12 disciples. When he comes down the mountaintop, he's headed towards the valley of activity. And as he gets, comes down the mountain, the first thing he does is he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. Probably the greatest message that's ever been declared. And then after the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus did miracles of healing and he cast demons out. Oh yes, the power of God is at work. And now the multitude comes together again as Jesus heads toward Capernaum. The multitudes are gathering. They are waiting on him. There's a large crowd. It's a pressing crowd. It is a demanding crowd. In fact, they're so demanding, so aggressive that it is hindering even his ability to eat bread. And it hinders his disciples' ability to eat bread. So many people are gathered and the needs are so pressing that he doesn't have room and he doesn't have time to even take the time to eat. He is immersed in the needs of the people. If I read to you Luke chapter 12 verse 1, the parallel passage, the Bible says that the people trod one upon, upon another. You know what's drawing them? They're drawn by His miracles. They're drawn by His mighty, marvelous works. They're drawn by His excellent speech. They loved it. Nobody could talk and preach and teach the way Jesus did. They're drawn by a buzz of excitement. There is a buzz of energy around the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll be honest, they're caught up in the bling of ministry. This crowd is unsurrendered in their relationship with Christ. They're living in unbelief, living, going from multitude to multitude to see Christ, but not committing unto Him. It is a curious crowd. They want to see more works. They want to see more things. They want to be in the know. They want to be part of the movement, yet they remain unconverted. They need to be saved. If they would step out of the crowd and approach Christ individually and humble themselves and call upon Him, He would save their sin-sick soul. It's easy to be part of the crowd, but it's not easy to step out of the crowd and enter through the narrow gate. There was a night when I was at church, about 350 or 400 people present. I was sitting hidden amongst the crowd. 
And Jesus found me lost where I was. And I could have stayed there, but I would remain unconverted. I would remain lost. I had to step out from the crowd and make my way down to an old-fashioned altar and humble myself and call upon Jesus. Had he saved me there that night? Can I get a witness? Have you had to step away from the crowd and get one-on-one with Jesus? In verse 20, there's a curious crowd. There are people that come to church here at Bethel that are curious sometimes of what's happening down there, what's going on. I'm telling you, sometimes I've been in services like we had a few Sunday nights ago. Man, that was the craziest service that I've ever been in in my life, amen. And I've seen some of those mighty works of God. I don't want to just be hanging around to be curious. Number two, I'm trying to preach quick. Number two, in verse 21, there's the critical crowd. When his friends heard of it, in other words, he's being pressed, he's being dogged, they're demanding of him, he, he doesn't even have to, room to eat or time to eat. When his friends heard of it, friends, that word, uh, translated into English from the, from the Greek is friends, it could also mean more than just friends, but mean kinsfolk. When they heard of it, look what the Bible says, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said he is beside himself. They've noticed that Jesus is pressing and pushing himself beyond the boundaries of perceived human ability. He's going out without eating. He's going out without considering the needs of his own body. He's going out beyond living a normal life. In other words, they're hearing him say, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I and my Father are one. And and they hear that and they think, no, 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 no. He's beside himself. We're his family. We're we're personal friends of his. We're we're distant cousins. He's lost his everlasting mind. We need to rescue him. We we need to lay hold on him. We need to uh, take him and seize him and pull him aside. And straighten this thing out. You may say, wait a minute, preacher Darren. That's not what it says. Look, look with me. They went out to lay hold on him. I could read to you, I've got verses out of the book of Mark that we could read that talks about exactly what those words mean. And I'm telling you, it's the same time every time. They want to lay hold on him and take him aside and stop him and fix him and then send him back in the fray. Listen, his friends say, You have a problem. You're going to implode if you don't slow down. So we need to pull you aside, change things up a little bit, and get you saying better things than you're saying. The things you're saying are offensive. The things you're saying, nobody's going to believe them. If you're going to speak, you need to speak better things than you're speaking. I'm telling you, you're not going to stop Jesus. He said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. That's why he's immersed in the needs of the people. And the critical crowd could not understand his willingness to give himself wholeheartedly to the needs of others. They concluded he's unbalanced. Look, they said he is beside himself. Is that what it says in your Bible? Our modern day interpretation is he's lost his mind. He's off his rocker. He is beside himself. 
He's irrational. His friends have become critical of his ministry. And they become fault finders. They but picking apart his words and picking apart his works even. They, they sought to change things about him to make him more palatable, to make him more acceptable. They even want to change his words. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And they say, oh, no, 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 you're, you're a way, you're a way to heaven, okay? We'll say a way. We know the law is a better way, right? That they want to change him. Listen, today, there are people that are critical of this church that we preach Jesus Christ saying that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no other way. And they're critical of that. They, they say if you change that and be more palatable, you'll get more people. They, they seek to change Jesus and change his message. Do you, you see in verse 21, there's a woke crowd. Even I said it, even in that day. Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, he didn't really mean to say that. Let, let's rephrase that, Lord. That, that's a little strong. They want to remake and they want to repackage the Savior. Here's the thing. You know what it is? It's unbelief. Masquerading itself like they're really concerned for his well-being. Preach Darren, is that in those two verses? Read it again. There are people that would like to lay hold on Christ. They'd like to take him to the side and change who he is and what he said and make him more socially acceptable. I'm not one of them. I'm not going to be critical of his ministry. Thirdly, there's another crowd. There's a condemning crowd. Verse 22. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub. And by the prince of the devils casteth he out the devils. You see that? Jesus just cast the devil, demons, out of a man. And they said Jesus is doing this by Beelzebub. He, he's the prince of the devils. He's, he's the lord of the flies. He's the lord of the dunghill. That's what they just said about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The, listen, those first two groups... They said Jesus is beside himself. They called Jesus a lunatic. That's unacceptable. Now this crowd is saying he's not the son of God. He's doing this because he's in a league with the devil. Now they're calling him not just a lunatic. They're calling our Savior a liar. Do you see Jesus as a lunatic? Do you see Jesus as a liar? Honey, I see him as the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. There are people that see him as delusional and they see him as being demonized. But honey, I'm telling you, I see him as the great day star. He is my Savior. This condemning crowd is seeking to discredit Jesus. They're thinking that Jesus, they're saying, they're, they're trying to uh, put it in people's mind that Jesus is associated with the sinister minister of darkness. Now let's just see how foolish their logic was. I want to say three things about it. That their, their reasoning is A, illogical. Look what Jesus says to them in verse 23. 
He called them unto him. Imagine being called to the principal's office. You're called to the creator's office. You're called to the office of the Son of God. He said, hey, come here. I want to talk to you. He said unto them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom be divided against itself, it that kingdom cannot stand. So let's talk about how illogical. Their position is impossible. No rational being would ever think this. He's defeated their, their argument to start with. How can Satan cast out Satan? If that's true, Satan would be destroying his very own self. He'd be chopping off his very own arms. It's an illogical argument. And then it is irrational. If a kingdom's divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Let's say you have a kingdom. Let's say you have a throne. Let's say you have a king on the throne. And you have subjects and you have legislatures. And if part of that kingdom rises up against the kingdom and they fight amongst themselves, who wins? Nobody. A kingdom divided against itself will not stand. It's divided. Look at verse 25. He says, if a house, that's a smaller kingdom, if a house be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Let's say tonight that you got in a boat and you're out on the water and you took a shotgun and you got upset and you fired the shotgun through the bottom of the boat. What happens? You've got a hole in the boat, water comes bubbling up, and you've sunk your own boat. A house divided against itself cannot stand. You have sunk your own boat. You see how illogical, you see how irrational they're thinking. Verse 26, and if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand but hath an end. If Satan fights against himself, he is defeated. May I just take time out to say he is defeated anyway. But he's defeated by a power much greater than his own. And the Lord is going to identify that power right here. Verse 27. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he will first bind the strong man and then he will spoil his house. Who is the strong man? It's the devil. It's Lucifer. It's Satan. It's Slewfoot. There was a time in the sense in which the devil had control of me. And there I was, part of his goods, living. The devil had me under his thumb. The devil had me under his authority. But Jesus came in that night, amen, and he bound the strong man, and he rescued me, and he delivered me. I had a choice. I had a choice. He bound the strong man. He said, will you go with me? I could have said no and stayed with the strong man. But instead, I went with the stronger man. I went with the strongest man. The one who was doing the binding, amen. The one who was doing the setting free. John 8, 36. Therefore, if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed, amen. I'll get a witness tonight. Was anybody held captive? By the strong man. But Jesus came and bound him one day. And now you've been set free. Hey, praise God. All this crowd can do, this, con this condemning crowd, is try to discredit our Lord. And, but I'm telling you, 
the, their, their reasoning is faulty. It, it will not hold up, amen. Hallelujah. So Jesus is unmasking the illogical insanity that this crowd is suggesting by their own unbelief. He's not a lunatic. He's not a liar. He is Lord of Lords. He's not Lord of the dunghill. He's Lord of Lords. Amen. Yeah, bless his good name tonight. Amen. Verse 28, watch here. Verily, I say unto you, all sins. You need to underline that. It didn't say almost. All sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. What he just said is, all sins are pardonable. The Lord will forgive all things, but, verse 29, but he that shall blaspheme the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness. That brings to mind an unpardonable sin. The word blaspheme means to speak against. The, the, the way you do that is the sin committed by your mouth. If you speak against, your tongue is set on fire of hell. That's what my Bible says. And the Lord knows it, and he set it in a place that's always wet to try to keep the fire out. And he put a row of pearly teeth, gated, amen, and he put lips of flesh, double wall fence in front of your tongue, and he put it in a place to keep the fire out, and yet it set on fire of hell. It's to speak against the Holy Ghost. He said, he that blasphemes against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. I say this all the time. Susan Smith, there, there was something that really bothered me. Susan Smith, she had two children. She, she fell in love with a man outside of her marriage. Uh, this man said, I don't want you because you have children. She said, if I didn't have children, would you take me? She, she said, I would. She put her children in their car seats, put her car in neutral, and shoved it into the John D. Rockefeller Lake, if I remember it right. And those children drowned to their death, screaming for their mother, help me, help me, help me. To me, that's unpardonable that you would murder your own children. But Jesus said, all sins shall be forgiven. What about that? God is able, if she got down on her knees and said, God forgive me of my sins and what I've done to my children and save my soul, God has enough mercy to forgive her and save her. I think about John Wayne Gacy who killed 32 men. I would say it's unpardonable. But God in heaven says that I'll have mercy upon who I want to have mercy and all sins are forgivable. And if he bowed his knee and called upon me, I'd forgive him and save his soul. But if you speak a word against the Holy Ghost, God will sign your death warrant. You're not just in danger of eternal damnation. You're already going on. You're going. You'll not get another chance. It's over. J. Harold Smith told me that he was in Georgia preaching. And he said he finished preaching. And he saw a boy standing in the back, looking, standing in the seat, looking over everybody else that was standing. 
And I looked at him and thought, what on earth is he doing? He said, son, do you need to be saved? He said, no, I don't need to be saved. I'm looking for a couple of girls to go dancing with. He said it publicly. He said, son, I and the Holy Spirit, we're dealing with you right now. Do you need to be saved? He said, you and the Holy Spirit can go to. And he said it out loud. And the preacher said, I felt like cold chills went down my back. I felt like I was talking to a demon. And he said he got his girls that night. Can you believe it? Got his girls and a buddy and they went dancing. And said they stepped out back because they was thirsty and hot. And he opened a flask to get a drink of his whiskey. And when he did, he said he fell down on all fours and began to whirl around like a jackal. And he expired. The coroner was called, and when the coroner got there, he said, I knew two things immediately, that that boy was graveyard dead, and that was the boy that was in the service earlier that night that told the preacher and the Holy Ghost where to go. And he said, I examined his body, and I could not find the cause of death. And I couldn't write, I wanted to, write on his death certificate, cause of death, the Holy Ghost killed him. I'm telling you, God will take you out of here. You better not be part of this condemning, critical crowd that's curious and speaking against the Holy Ghost. The preacher said he was in Louisiana. They were in a big uh, a rodeo arena. Had people that had chairs down. He finished preaching God's three deadlines. I believe he's preaching. And people were making, his way to the, making their way to the altar to be saved. And up in, uh, those up on this side, up in the balcony... There was three guys together, banded together, was laughing, said, there goes our card playing, buddy. There goes our drinking, buddy. Ha, 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 ha. Oh, it's just religion for now. That'll change in a few days. Dr. Smith said, I was on the stage, and they was interrupting the service. It got so bad, them laughing and mocking. And he said, I stopped. He said, I prayed. I said, God, let me backslide, backslide for about 10 minutes, and I'll go up there and beat the devil out of all three of them. God said, I didn't call you to fight. I called you to preach. Turn them over to me. And he said, immediately, I said, you see these three men? Will you come down the altar and be saved? They said, no, no, we won't be saved. It's the Holy Spirit. And they spoke against the Spirit of God. And he looked up and said, you see these three men? In 24 hours, God's going to kill them. They laughed. They laughed about it. The next morning, one of them took his car keys or took his business keys and stuck it in the front door of his business to unlock it, and he fell over dead without ever walking across the threshold of his business of a heart attack. At lunchtime, the second buddy was crossing the street to go to the delicatessen to get lunch, and he collapsed in the street, and he died. At 5 o'clock, the third one called his secretary into his office and said, it's almost 5 o'clock. Two of my buddies are already dead and are in hell, and by 7 o'clock tonight, I'm supposed to be there as well. And she said he pitched over backward in his chair and fell forward just in a big old hump on the floor, dead. God killed all three of them in 24 hours because they laughed and mocked at the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you tonight, you'll not scorn Jesus and get away with it. I'm not following him tonight to be curious, to keep up with his miracles and what he's doing. 
I'm not following him tonight, amen, to be critical of one another, to be critical of what the church is or is not doing, to be critical of the preacher, how long he talks or how little he talks, how loud he talks or how soft he talks. I'm not being critical of what God's doing. I also did not come here tonight to be condemning of what the Spirit of God is doing and how Jesus is working in our lives. Listen, we fight enough hell by the acre every single day of our lives. When we come here, honey, it's to be a refuge. It's to be a watering place. It's to be a place. This should be a house of prayer, a house of help, and a house of hope. Hey, man, I'm telling you, Jesus bound up the strong man and set me free. I do not want to get entangled again in the cares and the affairs of this world and get bothered and upset because of what somebody did or did not do in the flesh. I have come tonight to preach the word of the living God and rejoice in the salvation that he's given me. And I can't help it if it gets me pioneer excited. God's been good in my life. And my boat is full and I've not got a shotgun to shoot through the bottom of it. You'll stand to your feet tonight. Father, we thank you tonight for the word of God. I'm glad the Bible still says where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Jesus has already defeated my greatest foe. Why should I fear? Jesus has already given me the liberty that I need. Why should I get entangled with things that are going to pull me back in? Lord, Help us tonight, God, I pray, that this church might go forward in faith and in liberty with the Lord Jesus Christ, moved and led by the Holy Ghost of God. Thank you, Father, for your goodness unto us. Open to us, Lord, I pray, the treasures of your word in the book of Mark, in the book of Proverbs, in the book of Psalms. From cover to cover, show us that scarlet line of redemption, Lord. For this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.